This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Welcome to the Becoming Educated podcast. My guest today is Mark Burns. Over the last 10 years, Mark has developed a proven track record in improving teaching and leadership in education. He's co-authored two best-selling books in this field in engaging learners and teaching backwards. More recently, he has worked with FTSE 100 retailers and third sector organisations to develop the quality and impact of their learning and development programmes. Through his work, he has developed a deep understanding of learning design and how to overcome the barriers to learning in organisations which led to him co-authoring a third book, The Learning Imperative. Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. It's great to be with you. It, the pleasure is all mine, Mark. Thank you. So to, to kick us off, uh, can you tell us a little, bit, but, uh, a little bit about you and your career to date? Fantastic. It's me who's meant to stumble. You're meant to be the expert in these things. But um, I, I taught for 12 years, Darren, um, in schools in Liverpool, uh, all secondary schools. Uh, and then I got involved in a program where we were uh, videoing teachers uh, teach and getting them to analyze their practice on pick it, uh, reconfigure it um, and develop those skills in the classroom. Uh, and that grew and we've, we've worked with over 7000 teachers now, which, which spawned the ideas behind the two first two books. It was really trying to unpick what is it that the most effective teachers do do in their practice. Uh, and how can we narrow that range of quality between the great experiences some children get and the less effective ones, even if they're in the same school. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, the FTSE retailer, we'd then been contacted by organisations outside education. Uh, and it was really interesting. I'm always fascinated by looking at, at different um, environments for learning, like working in different school systems, because you can do that compare contrast, which is, I'm, I'm an inveterate learner. So if somebody says, you know, would you like to get involved? And it sounds interesting. And there's learning to be had. I'm, 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 I'm really up for that. So yeah. Brilliant. So we're going to, we're going to talk a lot about that and talk a lot about the themes that that you write about in the the learning imperative. But just to kind of start us getting in down that mind frame, why is it important to to keep learning throughout your career, and also to place a high value on it within organisations like schools and other businesses outside of school. I mean, for me, the only thing that exists are schools. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I think I think the current situation epitomises why we need to be learners. There's a great Eric Hoffer quote. It's, uh, the learned will inherit a world that no longer exists. And if you're in education now and you are learned, the next six, 12 months are going to be so painful for you. We're going to have to reconfigure large parts of how schools operate. Um, we're going to have to deal with children who are going to come back. Some have thrived at home because of the, the and others have gone backwards. Um, for me, learning at the heart of learning is about it's about feedback um, and human connectedness. And um, when I'm working in schools, uh, and I see there's, um, I, like, I like to talk about schools I'd want my own kids to go to because I, I think when we take the inspector out of it and co-construct what that moral imperative looks like. I like to think about that school being um, a school where I'd want my daughters to both be pupils and teachers too. And I think when you walk into a staff room or walk into a room, you've got a group of teachers engaged in professional learning, not because they're having to, but because it's a lunch break and they're trying to solve a problem or, or create a, a bigger impact in their, their own classrooms. It gives people energy. Um, and I think that 
the work we do in schools. It, it can be draining, but I think we can feed each other with 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 energy through learning. And um, you know, it's 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 remarkable. Some, sometimes I could be working at one end of a street in one school, and there's a completely different atmosphere than there is at the other end of the street in another school. And I think learning plays a key part in creating that environment for for learning. I I, I just think. Why do teachers love teaching? It's because of the variety, you know. And I think if you're not a learner, then you're going to keep doing the same old, same old, and you're still trying to photocopy that really faint work uh, handout that you used in 1982 that worked well, and you're trying to tr- keep going. I think there's always that question of how can I go plus one here, and that, and that for me is the is the fundamental thing about learning. It's about it's about, it's about that sense of growth and sense of achievement, and when you know, I'm, I'm of an age now, Darren, where uh, a lot of the students I started um, teaching when, when I was a, a novice teacher are in their 30s. And you might be in a bar, well, it used to be in a bar, or you'd be walking down the street, and when someone comes up to you and says, hello, sir, and then they tell you about their learning journey and their growth, and it's just so inspiring. You don't get that in any other job. I, I worked for an insurance company before before I came into teaching, and, and no one has ever stopped me in the street and thanked me for fixing a bug on the no-claims discount web, uh, page of the website. You don't get that same. It's that community that you sense of building. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I think particularly in education, which is such a tri- a challenging profession, we've got to have that energy that to to maintain that. What I always talk a lot about cathedral building. You know, no one who builds cathedrals, very few of them ever live long enough to see the thing finished. So we're building with a promise of of no reward at the end. But it's something that that community come together and look up to, and it's a, it's a, it kind of stands out as a, why we're doing what we do. Um, and I think if there's not learning in that process, I think people become jaded and covered in dust and give up. So um, yeah, g- give me a, give me a learning team any day of the week. I, I totally agree with that. I like what you said about cathedral building. It's it's very similar to plant trees that you'll never see grow, and, and that kind of maxims. I like what you said there about um, how can I go plus one here? Can you? Elaborate on that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think sometimes when you're working in busy organisations, people are looking for plus twenty, that that amazing solution that's going to solve the world. I think if we've constantly got in our head, what's my plus one? And my plus one is my little micro target for focused improvement. I'll give you an example. A teacher I worked with a few years ago, a wonderful guy called Alistair. He'd watched himself on video and he saw him, him charging through questioning interrupting kids and giving the answers to them. He only ever asked about two kids in the class because he just he was in such a rush. And and we talked about this, and he saw it on the video, and he said, I can't believe how that dreadful it is. I said, well, that's your target. I'm coming back in in five weeks' time with my video. Uh, that That's what I want you to think about every morning or every night when you're planning and adapting your lessons. So he put a little snail around his classroom, and that was a little aid memoir for him to slow down at key points. I went in five weeks later, set the video running, and as he started, he said, he, he looked at me and he winked and he said, watch this. The question was phenomenal. And at the end of the lesson, he just blew, he just blew on his nails like this, yeah? And it, because he nailed it. And it, you know what his question was? What, what now? What now? And I think with adults as well as children, uh, learners, if you give me plus 20, you're creating an enormous uh, potential for me to fail. And if I fail, I don't know which of those 20 things it is. But if I've constantly got, and if every teacher and every child in a school has got an idea in their head about what could make them help them go plus one each time, each day, then we build this culture of, of deliberate practice and we see success and we get success. And you always say, 
give me more, give me more. And I think whether we're leading CPD in our uh, professional learning in our schools and designing that, or whether we're teachers too, is creating that environment, that culture, where we're creating a plus one environment, where people are achieving success. And I'm a big believer, Darren, that um, the things that drive drives learning, one of the things that drives learners on is that feeling of competence. You know, when you get it, it's like Alistair when he, he nailed his questioning. What next? And I said, that was brilliant. What have you done? He said, that's the only new thing I've been thinking about for the last five weeks. He said, I, I used to be a teacher who try and trace 10 new improvement things every every term. You know what happens? Well, a teacher in England or Scotland and burn themselves out by the end of September. But if you've got that plus one in your head, and if you can work alongside other people going plus one in the same area, it's amazing how that, that collective efficacy comes through. And I'm a big believer in that trying to design um, professional learning that creates outcomes that inspire teachers to want to keep building and keep going plus one. Absolutely, that idea that, that success breeds success. It's the same for the, for the teachers and the adults as it, as it is, for, is for the learners. That was wonderfully summed up. Yeah, I think, I think you know, I think if, if someone said to me, boil it down, it's about competence. And every time I feel my competence is growing, it gives me confidence to keep pushing on. And, and then looking back and saying, yeah, God, I, look at where I've come on my journey. I was working with some teachers recently that just finished the first year of teaching. And I said, please capture, reflect on how much you've improved this year. And ask yourself, what can you be like after the end of two years of teaching? You know, it's, that, it's seeing teaching as something that I think if you can, you can tell if the teacher's not a learner. And, it, and, and the kids can pick up on it too. You know, it's that, uh, it's that certainty. It's that, I think the key to being a learner teacher is, is not assuming. It's asking questions. It's being suspicious by right answers. It's that constant understanding that learning. I mean, the problem we've got, Darren, is we're in an industry where, you know, the product, the output, learning is invisible. Mm-hmm. You can't smell it. And we've got to work on proxies all the time. And therefore, we've got to be curious and we've got to, be, um, we've got to um, not fall into the traps of assuming. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 that's the thing for me. It's, 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 it's learning and this idea of going plus one all the time. Absolutely. So let's go a l- little bit deeper then and, and think about what you think, think about some of the themes from, from the learning imperative. Mm. How do you define high performance? And also to that, what are the ingredients for a high performer? For me, it's about consistency of experience for for the child in the classroom because um, some teachers are particularly good working with maybe s1 or or but not great at working with which much older students so it's thinking about that it's thinking about um in terms of defining it we we talk about breaking um the components of high performance down into four areas so what's the knowledge of a high performer teacher yeah what would they need and that will be quite bespoke to the subject they're teaching particularly in secondary and what attitudes would they need to have developed over time? Uh, and what I've spoke about already is that it's the intense curiosity, the, the, the danger of uh, assuming. What skills will they have developed? And Alistair's cited one of those key ones, questioning skills. But I'd include lots of other things, but things like modelling and explaining. And habits, well, for me, the very best teachers I've worked with often make lousy coaches of other teachers. You know why? Because they've got unconscious habits. And why do they develop unconscious habits? They develop great routines. And therefore, in lessons, they can use their working memory to process the feedback from learners because they've automated how they get kids in off the, off the corridor and sat down and working. So for me, I think this, it, it's key to define what, high, what a high performer looks like because without it, we can't have discussions about gaps in performance. 
We can't design professional learning programs that are effective. We can't engage in high quality feedback with teachers about improvement unless we've nailed it. And if you're my head teacher and your deputy is looking for two different things, then each time you come into my classroom, I'm playing a game of guess what's in your head. Um, and I think too often, I think too often we, we, we're at risk of falling to the assumption that everyone's clear on what great teaching is. I think it's a, a really personal thing. And it, for my opinion, the problem with defining high-performing teaching is that everyone's been to school, so they've all got in their head what it is. You ask a taxi driver, you ever mentioned to a taxi driver you're a teacher, you get regaled for hours on the journey home. Yeah, that's why I always say I'm a tax inspector. But, you know, everybody's got their idea in the head of what, what makes a great teacher. But I think engaging in the process and the dialogue is really as valuable as the outcome of it. Absolutely. I, I, I interviewed a, a chap called Bruce Robertson most recently, and his book is the premise of his book is developing a shared understanding of great teaching within your school so that when you do observe and when you do provide your, your CPD programme, it's it's focused in on that so that everyone's clear on what excellence looks like so we can all work towards that. Yeah. In teaching backwards, you talk about the uh, the best teachers being Blue Peter teachers because on Blue Peter, they always start with, here's one we made earlier. And so we talk about the Blue Peter teacher is great at, uh, explaining things well. I think that's a really undervalued skill is the skill of explaining. Um, but for me, it's 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 creating a shared language that we can work together on. We can give th- people feedback about. We can co-construct around. If we haven't got a shared methodology for planning and teaching, then what you find is real variability of experience for children and young people. And one of the things that uh, was quite fascinating for me in the early days of videoing teachers was the real variety of experience children got during the course of a school day. I might be with a particular class in a secondary school, period one. I might be with the same class, period five, with a completely different teacher, getting a totally different experience. And that, that, that for me, I mean, one of the things you, I think is a real strength of the Scottish system is this word equity. But we haven't got a system of equity there when we've got real variety of practice. Uh, and for me, the, the most effective schools I've worked in, they've tried to deprivatise uh, practicing classrooms because you're working on your own a lot but it's trying to create that shared language around it so to enable us to collaborate more mm-hmm. i totally i would totally agree so let's let's talk a little bit about the kind of the cpd process for teacher teachers in schools and we've spoken about defining high performance and, and developing that shared understanding and that shared language as you spoke to so you spoke about so prior to, to a, a school leader designing a a, a program of learning what are the potential barriers to learning and could you share what barriers exist that prevent yeah. a learning culture from happening from occurring yeah I, I think if you want to create an environment uh for of that's going to be really toxic to learning i think the first thing you do is you create a school uh that has got uh populated by people with processing overload you create unclear systems and processes you create um a lot of monologue dialogue so uh, a lot of communication via meetings where one person in a meeting will speak and no one else will collaborate. Uh, a lot of email, which I think is just a succession of monologuing at each other. Um, so I think for one thing, we've got to create, we talk about cognitive load theories being a really important theory for learning for young people. It's just as important for adults too. And if you don't create the oxygen and space, then don't be surprised if people say, but when have we got the time for it? Mm-hmm. So that will be one thing. Um, the second thing, I think we need a shared model. We need shared clarity on what, what makes beautiful, uh, whether it's teaching, whether it's learning, whether it's beautiful playtime, beautiful uh, staff meeting. Just define it and get shared clarity, and that reduces process and overload. So 
what I'm saying to leaders that out there at the moment is, you know, we are experiencing process and overload from the transitioning and trying to run our schools remotely. But just look down at your school. Now's the chance to look at all the things in your school and ask yourself, which things have no impact at all that we could just get rid of? What things are consuming teachers' time that we can get rid of? And you'll be amazed the incremental um, time that that gains you. Uh, and, and for me, staff we talk about staff well-being a lot. And, and I don't think you solve staff well-being with Chocolate Fridays and the occasional aromatherapy twilight. It's actually about creating an environment where people go home on a Friday evening slightly depressed because the, the week's finished and you want them looking forward to coming in on a Monday morning, don't you? But if it's just more and more and more stuff. Um, so that will be the first thing. The second key ingredient is we've got to have strong relational trust. Um, England's taken quite a different pathway in terms of accountability to Scotland. Uh, and some of the some of that has created a real... Uh, trust vacuum mm -hmm. in schools uh, and teaching is quite a hard thing to get better at without getting things wrong and if you cr go into a classroom and know every all your learners are scared of making mistakes you don't get rich learning so we've got to create high relational trust in our school organizations where people can take risks can learn from it and then the final thing i think is um is really really key uh is creating an environment where we have accurate self-perception. I think we've used video analysis as part of our program to get people to evaluate the reality of their practice, not their perception. And that's not to say that any teacher is, is um, you know, is unprofessional because they don't spot everything in their classroom. There's just too much stuff to spot. Mm -hmm. And so you fall into the trap of inattentional blindness. And you've ever seen that video where people are playing basketball and then a gorilla man comes on dressed in a gorilla suit. That's exactly the same in a classroom. So getting people to analyze their practice on, on video helps people to align their own perception with the reality. And a lot of teachers, in my experience, suffer from the imposter syndrome. They don't realize that actually aspects of their practice are really strong. Uh, and similarly, some people uh, suffer the, from the Dunning-Kruger effect and they overrate themselves in particular areas. But both of those things can be barriers to learning. And it can mean that some teachers focus on uh, going plus one in areas of their practice they're already quite strong in and neglecting areas of their practice um, that they're not or actually dealing with the effects of problems rather than the causes. Um, so that's, they'd be key things. And, and I think, as you, you mentioned before about learning design, I think I think we're going to talk about a little bit later on. It's, it's, it's how do we design professional learning for teachers that actually does improve their performance as teachers rather than just learning stuff, mm -hmm. you know, which is great in itself. But if, if the aim of professional learning is to improve um, our performance in the classroom, then we do need to think about it in a slightly different way than if it's just knowledge giving. Mm -hmm. so we, cer we certainly do. And if everything that we actually do to improve teaching, it must have a, a clear explicit outcome on improving outcomes for young people and if it doesn't do that then we're just gaining knowledge for the sake of it yeah and i think that's the, that's the, that was the key subtitle of uh, the learning imperators it's raising performance through effective learning and it's that key thing uh, and in busy organizations um people will start to question the value of engaging in professional learning if, it, if they don't feel it's helping them get better mm -hmm. yeah um and, and i think that that that's something that I, I think over the years we've not been brilliant at in, in, in education. I know it's a sweeping generalisation, but there's, I remember thinking about it. You know, a lot of it's designed to fit a day, isn't it? Mm. 
um, or, a, or an hour or something rather than actually thinking, how are we going to make sure we embed this thing in our practice? There's a head teacher, a fantastic line. He said, we're going to stop launching initiatives, initiatives next year. I'm going to start embedding initiatives because people just become weary about every new session, <laughs> starting with another new bright, shiny thing. And by November, everyone's forgotten about it. Exactly, exactly. If you want to have real long-term change, we need to actually embed these initiatives. So before we yeah. move, move on to to um, more of, of, of learning design, you spoke speak a bit about in your book about those that are, that are open to learning and those that are close to learning. We spoke there yeah. about um, barriers to learning. And one of the most challenging tasks of a leader is having conversations with lo- those that are less open to learning. How do you mm. suggest leaders tackle these types of interactions? I'm a big believer, Darren, in prevention is better than cure. So uh, I've worked with some leaders over the years who've prided themselves on, you know, having 15 difficult conversations before nine o'clock on a Monday morning, like it's some kind of ego trip. For me, it's about prevention. Um, and where we've got folk who are close to learning on our organisations, I'm a big believer in looking at ourselves first. Um, it's not a tool to blame people. It's a tool, It's an understanding uh, it's a way of understanding why they become close to learning, because I've I rare to meet a new to the profession teacher who isn't keen as mustard to change the world, but in some teams and some organisations those folk become jaded and become close to learning over time. So for me, it's trying to understand why that person's become close to learning and trying to deal with the causes of that rather than addressing the effects. With respect to the conversation, I think. Every one of the fantastic leaders I've worked with around the country and interviewed, it took 12 months touring the country interviewing fantastic head teachers I'd worked with. Um, and all of them had in their armory this difficult conversation. But it, they were very effective at, at it because for two reasons. One, they started out in an environment where we had shared clarity on what beautiful represented. So where people were deviating from that, it wasn't, Oh, I thought that's what you meant. There was, there was shared clarity of what excellence represented. And the second thing was they had built strong relational trust with, the, the, with folk in their team. So when uh, there was that difficult feedback conversation, it was based upon shared clarity and maintaining strong relational trust. Uh, and if you've ever had feedback from someone in the past, which is so benign because they're just worried about upsetting you, that you walk away thinking that was a waste of time, that was useless – Sometimes the difficult conversation actually helps you to go plus one. It may not feel like it at the time, but you're trying to design the conversation so that in six months' time, someone comes back to you and says, Darren, thank you for that. That's really helped me overcome that obstacle. Um, And I think if we have a a school environment where people uh, can have that honest dialogue, I think we can all all benefit massively from it. You know, in this environment of of, of post-COVID, I think... Um, straight talking and speaking our thinking processes out loud will be a really, really helpful thing to do because it clears out all those hidden agendas and and what's in Darren's head. Why did he say that? Why did he put that comma in that email? But if we we get into the habit of saying, I'm just going to speak openly about my concerns because I'm worried about them, then when I say them, that's just, just, it's like a light bulb goes on in the room. Everyone then understands what the problem is. Um, And I think, Without the honest conversation, I just think we're going to struggle to create that beautiful school. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I love, I, I love how you keep referring to to what makes beautiful and, and what is our beautiful. I love that 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 term and, and how you're describing that. And I think it really captures the essence of 
of what what we try to do when we when we want high performing teaching. So now that we've kind of covered the barriers, what the barriers to learning, and we've spoken about that, those like less open to learning. So now we now um, we know that learning is, is key to to success in our schools. How should leaders design learning programs, or more common to our listeners, school CPD programs? Yeah. I think there's certain key uh, ingredients. We need to start from the starting points of the individuals in our staff. And I always worry when someone says to me, oh, we're going to do X next year. And I always ask, why are you doing X? Because the school down the road did X and it really worked for them. The problem is if your school's in a different context, I don't mean in terms of the intake of your, of your children, but in terms of where your staff are, in terms of their level of performance, their openness to learning, X might fall flat on its face. Um, I don't know whether it's, uh, it may be John Hattie who says, beware of educational consultants bearing solutions. Yeah, you can always find somewhere in a system where something will work or will have worked once. So for me, it's starting with the starting points of our team and their needs and hopefully getting their buy-in to what that plus one is. I think the second stage is, it's planning backwards and it's planning backwards from uh, a theory of action that means we get improvement in that area. We get development in that area. Um, and that actually means starting from what will be the impact on children and their learning in the classroom. Okay, let's work back from that. So therefore, what do teachers need to change to get that? And then we work that back again and we get to the point of, well, how do we design this thing? Yeah. So I think it's really, really important to think about what's this going to look like and sound like when it's working in the classroom. Um, and I think it's also thinking about the process. The process has got to involve deep dialogue because ultimately teachers have to be able to transfer this improvement in lots of different contexts from Monday morning when it's sunny to Friday afternoon when there's a dog on the playground and it's, it's slewing with snow. Yeah. The teaching is complex because of the so many different contexts in which we have to apply these things. You're a PE teacher. Yeah, classroom P is different to teaching in the gym that's teaching outside, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So we've got to think about how that works and so forth. I, I, I personally think that teachers need a much deeper understanding of what they're doing to enable them to transfer it across different contexts. And I think another element, it's got to provide lots of opportunities for practice. What I'd say is planning, testing it out and reflecting on it. And that cycle of plan, test, reflect is a really, and we need multiple opportunities to do that. So therefore, yes, it's going to be time consuming, but not as time consuming as using learning programs that have got no basis in evidence that they'll have an impact on teacher performance. They're, in, in my eyes, they're, you know, they're designed conveniently for the person facilitating it or the time we've got, but it's actually planning with improvement in mind. Mm -hmm. It's actually using the, the precious time that we have to facilitate improvement rather than doing things for the sake of them to tick them off. I, I couldn't agree more more there. And in the book, you talk a lot about, about shared clarity and we've spoken about that and, and kind of developing what makes our beautiful earlier on in, in, the, in the show. So but how powerful are the use of stories in order to convey new learning? And then in what other ways can we develop that shared clarity? Yeah, I think stories have got a magical quality. I think stories, I think when we are looking to improve our performance and go plus one, we need the answers to three questions. The first one, some people won't ask you this question, but they'll think it. They'll need to, the answer to the why question. Why are we doing this? Why me? Why now? Why this aspect? The second is what? What are we going to do? What's it going to look like when it's working? And the third is how? 
So where are the practical tools and strategies? I think stories are a great way of exemplifying the what, selling the why, and in many cases, if we can identify with that person, they may be a colleague, it gives us that buy-in. Um, I think in, in a classroom, stories have got a brilliant way of connecting large amounts of, of information. And when you look at the development of language in preschool children, stories are so, so powerful. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in looking for story, in looking for narrative. Uh, there may be stories where something's gone wrong and what can we learn so we don't avoid that story ourselves. And also really correcting people's internal stories because we'll walk around with a story of how the world is. You know, why that child won't learn, why that family from that estate are uh, impossible to teach. And sometimes we've got to change that narrative. Um, and some people have got to be aware of what that narrative takes place. Um, stories are one aspect. I think the power of dialogue. And I, I think if there was one thing that uh, I'd encourage leaders to look at, at the, uh, going forward is investing in deep, powerful dialogue and creating meetings where we have lots of opportunity for rich dialogue and, and meaning making of it. You know, if I ask you, if I tell you something and I'll, I might say, do you understand? And you might nod your head. And it may be because you do understand or maybe you've misunderstood what I've said and you've made your own meaning. Through dialogue, we, we kind of unpick all of that stuff. Uh, and people leave meetings with greater clarity on how they're going to implement stuff. So for me, I, 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 I think sometimes in schools, we just are too much of a rush to get through things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing I think about dialogue is, you know, dialogue involves listening. And if you want to build trust with people, listening is the great way of saying to them, I value you, both as a professional as a human, yeah, and I, I respect you and I'm going to demonstrate to you unconditional positive regard by saying, Darren, what's your thoughts on this? And that is a great way to build trust with people. Um, you know, when you hear people say about leaders, they don't listen that's a sign that we've got a trust level that's not going to be productive for effective learning. Um, so maybe, and, and it's interesting because I'm working with a group of schools at the moment on um, a wellbeing program, how they can help young people when they come back in school by being an emotionally resilient staff themselves. And one of the things they talked about is um, we've slowed down a lot since school has changed uh, and we want to keep that slow dialogue when we go back. And we've got to, but we've got to actively do that because it will just slip away otherwise, won't it? Yeah, one, one of the ones was was um, Friday afternoon coffee cakes in the staff room, just to unpick the week, reflect on it, reflect on how we've grown as a teacher, what things have surprised us, you know, the power of that dialogue. And, and for me, how can we design that into the day to day of school so we get those moments? Because it can be quite a lonely job being a teacher, mm-hmm. can't it? Absolutely, you can you can live and work in in your silos. I mean, a little insight into into my school. The P department is separate building from the main school, and you could actually go through your working week and have never been into the main school. So, creating those opportunities for that deep dialogue with your colleagues across different contexts is is so key. And it goes back to what we said earlier. You said earlier on that now's the time to think about the things that we just do not need to do. Yeah. The things we do need to do, as you said, is to is to listen to one another, to have deep dialogue, have that shared clarity and shared understanding of, of, of what our beautiful looks like and then put things in place to help us get there and which will inevitably improve the outcome for the young people in our classrooms. Yeah, yeah. And now is a point of reflection because uh, when we start going back in and, and schools, they've never actually closed, but when they start resembling more 
like the traditional schools we've seen, there'll be so many challenges that we've got to face. Now is the opportunity to have those thoughts. Um, and, you know, what, what I'd say is, you know, to school leaders um, who are listening is, you know, we're not just building cathedrals for the young people. Um, what do we want our colleagues to say about us when we retire? Uh, you know, if you are a head or a deputy, you are grooming and developing the next generation of leaders. So we get a lot by the modelling. And, and I think um, unless we consciously do this stuff, we can slip into habits and, and, and um, routines that actually on reflection don't really serve us that well. Mm-hmm. That's where it helps to actually flash out and agree or agree upon what are the the knowledge the the attitudes the the skills and the habits that that high performers show and then actually actively work towards that you're right yeah. that you kind of towards the end of the book and, and when you speak about once program uh, the, the learning program has been designed you talk about the u stage so what is yeah. the, what is the u stage and, and why is the u stage so important the u stage is the point in the learning program when the individual, the learner, the teacher has structured opportunities to apply the knowledge and develop the skills and habits. I don't think it's possible to develop a high quality questioning in a one hour training session. The best way to develop your questioning is planning the change, testing it out, reflecting on the reality of that change, getting feedback either from watching it on video or from a trusted peer, then refining it again. It takes a while to develop habits. The analogy I choose is a bit like driving a car. Yeah, When you start driving a car, you, you don't realize you can't do it until you start driving a car. It looks really, really easy. And actually, when I was a novice teacher, um, what I found was that um, before, I'd watch people teach, and I thought, oh, man, this looks dead easy. And it's only when you have to do it yourself, you realize, my goodness me, there's so many complex things going on here. Um, that actually I wasn't even sure what um, what I was doing wrong in some places. It just wasn't working. Um, so for me, it's 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 creating that new stage with that micro focus. What's the one thing that if I change that and get that opportunity, um, will make that difference? Will make that difference. And 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 really, a lot of the learning programs I've seen in schools they miss that key stage out. So teachers know, oh, I need to do X Y Z, but they don't get a structured opportunity to try it out. And actually. They may be successful, but don't have a chance to reflect on that success because it's such a busy process. Mm-hmm. You know, so for, for me, if, you know, again, if the uh, folk listening or designing learning programs or thinking about professional learning or CPD and then schools is where's, this, where's the opportunity where people are going to have a chance to embed the improvement in their practice and make it automatic. So next year they'll say, right, I've nailed that. What's next? Mm-hmm. Exactly, and can I go back to you to the five weeks when you were working with Alistair, where he was focusing on that one thing, having the opportunity to practice that with purpose, and then reflecting on, upon that because he was able to watch the video back and go, "Oh yeah, I've, I've definitely." Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 um, you know these are things that we can do. Um, this is where I'm a big believer that that we can actually drive our own performance forward. If we've got a a small group of teachers in the school, we can drive this performance forward without having to rely on on other folk to actually lead it for us. Um, Because you you do see it around the country, but if we can design it whole school, that'd be fantastic. Certainly, and it's it's, it's certainly possible. So we've kind of briefly spoken about about, about leaders and and modelling and and, and that kind of principles surrounding that but why is it so important that the leaders themselves model that they are open to learning and and how should that look in practice okay um i think it's not what you say it's how you are um and 
the leaders I researched and interviewed as part of the process of researching the book, um, some of them were unconsciously competent. They'd just say things like, well, it's just what I do. So I then had to shadow them for a day just to watch what they were doing because actually um, they'd always done it that way. Um, but for me, through our actions, our behaviours, our routines and how we are, um, exemplifies, it's a, it's, a, it's a strong way of demonstrating what beautiful represents. The other thing is, when people are looking for opportunities to diverge, if they point to you and say, well, Darren's not doing that, so why should I do that? It becomes, it's a bit like, the, you know, walking past lift on the corridor. The, what we walk past is what we permit. Mm. And, 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 and I think sometimes when people don't model, it's either because they don't see how powerful it is as a guide, uh, uh, as a, a persuader to others, but I think it's sometimes because um, they haven't got real coherence about how all these bits fit together. And, and maybe they say something, but they actually don't deeply deeply mean it. Um, the other thing I would say about modelling, I think it's you're better off modelling than acting because, you know, just just, just live it. Just live it. And, and, and I have to say, you know, interviewing the staff in these schools, interviewing these leaders and seeing the impact they have on their school communities and the communities around them, it's such you can have such a positive impact and infect a community in a way that's just so powerful. No other job like it really isn't. There, there certainly is it, and and that brings us beautifully to the end of the the interview section. Before we move on to my final three mark, the, the questions that, okay. I, that I ask every single guest. But before we, we we go on to the final three, can you share with listeners where they can find out a little bit more about you, where they yeah. can engage with you, and most importantly, where they can get their hands on your books? Okay, so the the books can be found on Amazon um, or Crown House Publishing. They've got a 30% off deal at the moment, so I'll give them a push. Uh, and they've got it in different formats, so the, the Learning Imperative is available uh, either electronically or as an audio book. Um, but the other books are available on Amazon. Um, contacting me, um, I'm at Learn Imperative on Twitter. Um, my website is mark-burns.co.uk. Uh, and I'm also on things like LinkedIn as well, if you Google and search for I may not look like I, I do at the moment because obviously I've got lockdown hair, so I've got something. It's getting longer and longer and longer. Um, so yeah, they're, they're the places. And and ordinarily I'd be at all the big events around the country, but um, I'm currently locked up in an office underneath the stairs and trying to find the quietest room in the house to do <laughs> online CPD. Which is you know, well that's where we've got to be learners as well, haven't we, Darren? We've got to adapt and we've got to change to uh, the environment we're in, and it's uh, it's all very um, exhausting but exhilarating. Certainly, and it kind of goes back to the the quote you said you said right right at the start about the futures for the for the learned and, 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 here, and here we are learning. So it brings us wonderfully on to to the final three mark the questions that I ask every guest. So my my first one to you is: What book or text has had the biggest impact on your career? Right. This was a really interesting question because um, sometimes I get a lot from books that aren't about education that draw me in, um, and for me. I think the most powerful book, um, I think the most powerful book speaks to you on a number of different levels. So this book spoke to me as a parent, as a son, um, as a husband, and, and as an educator. And it was Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize uh, for economics, even though he's a psychologist, but he talks about the dangers of fast thinking. He talks about us being really prone to unconscious biases. And I think so much of that I see in education as, as challenges for us. Um, so that would be that would be my summer holiday read if someone recommended that to me. 
The other one that I think is really, really interesting is um, is a book called Community by Peter Block. Uh, Peter Block's a community activist working in North America, and he talks in the book about um, 80% of phone calls to the police actually just need a good neighbour. And I think in times like this, um, in our com- in our school communities, uh, he's got this great line. Um, are we a community of focuses on possibilities or on problems? And I love the idea of us being a community of possibilities. That's such an inspiring thing. Because actually, sometimes in our community, school communities, we can fixate with the problems and they could be hugely draining. So they would be my two books, um, both of which I think can feed teachers and, and school leaders too. Um, and and the, uh, you know what? I judge a good book by the number of post-its sticking out the side of it and how thumb, thumb you know, how, da- how damaged this spine is because I've read them so much. So they're definitely two of the most uh, destroyed books on my bookshelf. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank, thank you so much for that. On to the, the second question, Mark. If you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think for me, the importance of shared clarity and the danger of assumptions. Um, too often we speak and we assume people understand us in the way we intend. Uh, and I think if we were more questioning as teachers about whether we've modelled something as being clearly understood, given what I said before about the importance of competence for learners, uh, the danger of assumptions and the importance of shared clarity is, is, is a really powerful thing. And it comes, particularly my experience of working in the city schools in Liverpool, that uh, where some of the learners um, lacked that, ability to self-regulate and, and, and were vulnerable in a sense that gave up quickly. Trying to engineer an environment of, of, of progressive competence is really key. So sort of growing that spiral of, of, of efficacy I think is really powerful. Um, yeah, that, that that would be my advice. And I wish, listen, I wish I'd somebody told me that before I started teaching. I didn't realise how important it was. And watching when you watch great teachers model and explain well and make sure kids are clear, it just makes the job so easy. And the kids are so much more engaged, you know, because there's none of this. What do we do? You know, is this right? There's none of those conversations. So it's that will be that will be something I'd, I'd give uh, to a teacher. Certainly, thank you so much, Mark. And my last one to you is one that really fascinates me, and the different different answers that I'm getting from right. from all my wonderful guests is, is: what do you think most gets in the way of, of great teaching in our classrooms? Goodness, how long have you got? Um, I think there's a number of things. Um, I think it's about agency. Um, and I think we've got to focus on what we can control and influence. There'd be two key things, I think. I think the second thing and, and the most important thing is just busyness. I think schools run at a million miles an hour. Uh, and, you know, if there's a way of, of having a stop list for next year, that would be a great thing. What gets in the way? What are those barriers? What are the things we do in school that have no impact? What things have we hung our, our, our hat on that have got no evidence base behind? And just really question those things. I think we, we too quickly we add things into schools. And it's often because we're enthusiasts. But I'd always say to school leaders, if you're going to add that to the school load of a teacher, how much extra time will that take? And if it's five hours a week, what five hours are you going to stop them to do? And the danger is we just keep loading more and more stuff on. So I think it's it's back to that question about what is beautiful. Um, and if we have that shared clarity, then we can work. We, we don't just add things in. I think the best schools I've worked around the UK, they don't just do things for fashion. Um, and they, and some of the, the new acronyms, they say, well, we're not doing that because we've already got something that's better. 
And I think being brave in that way is, is, is a key to leadership um, rather than just keep adding more stuff. That's brilliant. Thank you, Mark. I think I would like to, to finish that, the, the, the interview today and, and just encouraging listeners to really think about what is beautiful to them and I think that's one of the one of the most wonderful things I'm going to take from from this interview Mark so it, it brings me on to, to thank you so so much for for giving up your time today I know that you're a, a busy man but I really do appreciate it and, and I'm sure the listeners will get a lot out of this so thank you so much thank you Darren thank you for having me on it's great to it's great to talk about learning because what I'm leaving with is a load of energy from you, and I think that's what we get when we when we engage with people who are open to learning and uh, and moving things forward. So thank you very much, and good, and you know more power to your podcast because you've got some great speakers on there, and they just keep going with it. It's really helping. Thank you. It was a great pleasure, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.